If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. That's page 941 in the Pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, this is our gift to you. We encourage you to take it home. Keep reading in the book of John. Come back. Tell us about what you, th- what you think about the gospel. John chapter 1. What was the last thing that you shared with somebody else? Not something trivial, like maybe you gave someone a ride. Not something bad, like a cold or a COVID. Like what was the last good thing you shared with someone? You had something, it was so good, so beautiful, so life-changing even, you couldn't keep it to yourself. You had to share it with somebody. Jess and I do date nights on Sunday evenings. <laughs> Who did that? <laughs> Glorimar. Anyways, we're done. <laughs> Jess and I do day nights and Sunday evenings. Haddon watches the other three kids. We go out to dinner. I'm just kidding. He's five. We put him down. I go get food. I come back. So let's see. This is probably two months ago. The Matskis and the Samples, they told us about these new taco trucks that have been popping up. Tacos and Ganas. Yes, the people know. And uh, they told us about it. I was like, okay, we're going to do that for our Sunday evening date night. Now, just to give you a little bit of context, I'm Mexican on my mom's side. I was born in East L.A. I grew up in Dallas. I know a bad taco when I have one. I know a good taco when I have one. Okay, so that's Sunday. I know what we're going to do. I pick them up. I take them home. I open it up. I take a bite. Single tear down my cheek. (laughs) That good. (laughs) We normally, during these times on Sunday evenings, we check in. We talk about our marriage. We just kept talking about the tacos. (laughs) They're that good. We're like, these things are good. I told I this is a life-changing taco experience. Okay, and then I know that my family is going to be coming into town for Christmas probably two or three weeks later. Uh, my mom and my dad and my sister and her husband. For two weeks, that's what I'm thinking about. When they come in town, I'm going to take them to eat these tacos. It is going to blow their minds. And so they finally come into town. We're kind of planning our meals and stuff. And I'm like, I don't care what we do. We're going to do one thing. We're going to go eat tacos and ganas. It is going to blow your mind. I'm not even afraid to overhype these tacos because they're that good. <laughs> The time comes, we go, we order, we eat. It's like fire from heaven has fallen down. It's like Mexican, Mexican uh, manna, we're eating. My, my brother-in-law is like a huge foodie. He like keeps stopping to thank me for taking them there because it's so good. The only person who doesn't like it is Pavy. She's four, she's more British than Mexican at this point. I think she'll come around. I want you to think about this entire experience as one of receiving, rejoicing, sharing. Receiving, rejoicing, sharing. It's made possible for a few reasons. One of us has something. Jess and I initially receive the tacos. We can only share what we have. And then notice who we share it with. It is natural to share something you love with the people you love. One of the most natural responses to the experience of something good, of something beautiful, of something right, it's the sharing of that goodness with others so that they can partake in your joy. Now, this morning in the text, we're going to see that Jesus is inviting people to follow him. Uh, Just a quick note, this is different. You'll see a call of Jesus later in the Synoptic Gospels. So, for example, Luke chapter 5. There's a reason why when Jesus is calling his disciples later, they drop everything and follow him. It's because they've had an initial experience with him. 
This is it. It's like a protocol. He's inviting people to come and to see him, the language of the text. But what I want you to see is that Jesus' invitation comes through the preaching of others. From John the Baptist to Andrew to Simon to, I think, Philip and then Nathaniel. There is this pattern of having, rejoicing, sharing, rejoicing. Okay, said differently, we share what we love with who we love. John 1, beginning in verse 35, through the end of the chapter, if you're able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe this because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Amen. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning... Jesus invites the world to know him, to follow him, to experience him. Jesus invites the world to follow him through the evangelism of others. Okay, Jesus invites the world to know him, to follow him, to experience him through the evangelism, through the preaching of others. And we'll split our text into three evangelistic scenes. In the spirit of of a full disclosure, these, I basically got these points from one, a commentator, Frederick Dale Brunner. I did write my sermon. <laughs> they, not exactly these points, but they correspond closely enough that I want to say I got it from Brunner. Okay, three evangelistic scenes. We'll see the evangelism of a preacher, the evangelism of a sibling, and the evangelism of a friend. Okay, these three evangelistic tests, texts, the evangelism of a preacher, the evangelism of a sibling in the evangelism of a friend. Jesus invites the world to see him, to know him, to follow him through the evangelism of others, and we start with the evangelism of a preacher. So we start where we left off with John, the OG Baptist, verse 35. 
Look at the text. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. The next day. So we should see this as it's connecting it to what has happened before. This entire episode begins in verse 19. If you'll recall, John has been preaching and baptizing in such a way that it's creating a stink in Israel, at least among the religious leaders. And that's because what John is basically doing is he's telling Israel that they're not a part of true Israel yet. They need to be washed by the water and the word. They need to repent in light of the coming kingdom of God. And so these leaders in Jerusalem, they send this kind of truth squad to John to check him out. They find out from him he's not the Messiah. He's not Elijah in the way they understand the prophecy. He's not the prophet that Moses wrote about. But he tells them that he is, in fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah, he's the spirit of one crying out in the wilderness. We saw in Malachi that um, the Lord was sending someone, or this is Isaiah rather, to level the hearts of the people before the great and terrible visitation of God. Because like we saw in Isaiah, when God comes, he will be like the sun, bringing healing to the righteous, but scorching the wicked. And so John is preparing Israel by preaching a message of repentance. Verse 29, the next day, John's probably there in the same spot. He's preaching again. He sees now Jesus coming toward him. His eyes behold the one he has longed to see. The content of his preached word is walking toward him. And John cries out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right, no longer the kingdom is coming, but the kingdom is here. The king is there. It's not the image that Israel expected, a lamb, certainly not the king they deserve, but he's the king they need. Behold the lamb of God, he's the Passover lamb. By being covered in his blood, the destroyer passes over and God makes us his people, his children. Behold the lamb of God, he is the guilt offering. Our sins are placed on his head that God's justice might be satisfied. Behold the lamb of God, he is Isaiah's lamb from Isaiah 53. The silent lamb sent to slaughter on behalf of his people that they might be justified. Israel, behold your king. God, become man, become lamb. Then John tells us more than that. He says he existed, or he ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. That's part of what John was showing us in the prologue, that he's the word become flesh. And then John tells us that he's, he's the spirit-anointed Messiah. He saw the spirit rest and abide on him. Because of that, he's able to baptize his people into the spirit. This is the one that Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah saw. He's here. John sees his king. He preaches his guts out. I think what's interesting is John doesn't show us any response from the people. We don't know if anyone followed Jesus. We know that John was faithful in his preaching. We know why. He went back the next day. Verse 35, the next day. John was standing with two of his disciples when they saw Jesus passing by. He said, look, the Lamb of God. I assume that John is back in the same spot where day after day after day after day he's preaching. He sees Jesus again, this time not walking toward him but past him. And then John preaches an abridged version of the sermon he preached the day before. Look, the Lamb of God, don't miss him. He's right there. Our sin-bearing king, there he goes. Something clicks for two of John's disciples today, verse 37. The two disciples heard him. 
That's Bible for they understood him. They heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Their time with John has come to an end. John has done his work. He has prepared the way by preaching to level hearts, to lift up Christ, to present the lamb. And when the lamb is there, he pushes his followers toward them. The evangelism of a good preacher, I think, can be summed up by one word, and it's faithful. Faithful in two respects. One, John is faithful in content. He is preaching a message that's not popular with religious leaders. It won't be popular with the civic authorities. His head will be served on a platter. It's not a message that the natural man likes to hear. Repent. But John is faithful. I said this last time, but there is much that we can and even ought to say about Jesus to our non-Christian friends. There is one thing that we have to say at some point if we are to preach the gospel. It is that Jesus has come to make an atonement for sins. He certainly is the king. He brings the kingdom, but he is the only way in. It is by trusting in his atoning work. John is faithful in content in his message. He's also faithful in calling. Think about this. John was sent to prepare the way to be a pointer to Christ. How ironic if when Christ finally came and his followers tried to leave him for Jesus, John said, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys can, you can stay here. Stay a part of our little, you know, church. You can believe in Jesus from afar. No, he preaches day after day after day about the coming king, and when that king comes, John happily recedes into the background. He joyfully transfers their membership to Christ. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. Sometimes faithful preaching and pastoring doesn't lead to an increase of numbers. It certainly should never lead to an increase of self. Many won't join our church because it's not for them. Some because they're offended. Many will leave our own body because the Lord Jesus is calling them away to do something else for him. To serve overseas, to serve in helping plant a church, or just to join another church and to be a faithful member somewhere else in our country or state or even city. Our job is to preach Christ, to really point to him in such a way that when people leave for Christ, we count our loss as gain. What John experienced that day was not a failure, but the fruit of persistent, patient, prayerful preaching. Verse 37, again, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Again, notice two of Jesus' first followers, they come to him by means of the preaching of another, John the Baptist. Verse 38 when Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? So you can kind of picture Jesus walking by, just doing his own things, on his way to get a falafel or something. And then these two, these two guys just start following him. Now, nine times out of ten, if that happens to you, you're running. You get in your phone, you're pretending, you're pretending to talk to somebody. Jesus does two things. First, he notices them, and then he asks them a question. He notices them, and then he asks them a question. One of the things that the gospel writer does masterfully, I think, in this section, is he'll present something that seems mundane, and yet it's loaded with meaning. Jesus, Jesus noticed that they were following him. You would too. It's kind of odd. They're following him. They haven't even said anything. But Jesus doesn't just notice people. He notices people. Like, he doesn't just look at people. He looks into people. 
We'll see this with Peter. We'll see it with Nathaniel. We'll see it in John chapter 4. Jesus is at the well with a Samaritan woman. That's all the disciples see. Samaritan woman, a sinful woman at that. Yuck. Jesus sees someone who's thirsty, who's empty, who's broken. Jesus doesn't simply notice them. He notices them. And he notices you. You might feel overlooked by the world, and you might be. But you are not overlooked by Jesus. There is one not from this world who walked it, and he notices you right now. He noticed you such that he came to live and to die for you. And he invites you, as we'll see, he invites you to see him, to behold him. Jesus notices us. Now, Jesus, he doesn't count their lack of social awareness against them. He asks, what are you looking for? Again, on the one hand, mundane, like, why are you following me? And yet, I think, loaded with meaning, like, what are you looking for? You're following John for a reason. You're following me now for a reason. What is it you're looking for? Like, what is it you want in life? Jesus, I promise you, understands them just by a simple look. He understands their hopes, their dreams, their failures, their country's history. He knows their need before God. He gets them, and he penetrates them with a question. What are you looking for? What are you after? What do you think that has to do with me? Some of the best evangelism happens first by means of question asking, by prodding and pricking. Like, what is it that you want? Well, what happens when you get it? Do you think it's going to satisfy Has it satisfied you before? What about God? What does this have to do with God? How did you come to that conclusion? What do you think God demands of you? What about your sin? What about your wrongs against him? Jesus penetrates them with a question. What is it that you want? They respond, verse 38, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? I think they can't answer this question in a simple walk. They want to see where Jesus is staying so that they can have a long conversation about what it is that they exactly want. Jesus says, come and you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Jesus is not just inviting them to come and see where he's staying, like the decor of his home. Jesus is inviting them to come into where he's staying to see him. Think about Jesus' inclination here. He doesn't know these people. Again, if two people are following you and then they ask you for your address, you are calling the police. (laughs) Jesus' inclinations are very different than ours. He invites them into his home. He invites them to come in and to see him. Jesus was not walking by John the Baptist on accident. He came not to flee but to be found. And more than that, to find us. He invites them to see him, to experience him, to know him, to find the one their souls have been longing for, to drink deeply from his well, to come and to see the glory of the word become flesh, the one and only son of the father, come and see. What an invitation. The world, on the other hand, wants to take. They want to know what they can get from us. Jesus invites us just to come and to see. 
We see our first evangelism scene, it begins with, we might say, pulpit preaching from John the Baptist. It ends in a home, two of the best places for sharing the gospel. We might say the church and a dinner table. NBC, I wonder who do you know, a non-Christian, that you can invite to church, that you can invite into your home to have a meal with you, that you might ask them questions about what it is that they want so that you can give them the answer the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We see that the pulpit and the pews, the church and the home, we might say they work together in evangelism. They ought to. So we see the evangelism of a preacher, John the Baptist. He's faithful in content. He's faithful in calling. And then we move to the evangelism of a sibling. Okay, we move from John to Andrew, from preacher to sibling or brother, verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. Okay, so we know the identity of one of the two. We don't know the other. It might be, it could be the gospel writer, John. But one of the two is Andrew. Now, Peter, Simon, he's the more prominent, okay? You probably know a lot about Peter. You probably don't know much about Andrew. He's the brother of Peter. (laughs) He's a disciple of Jesus. And yet, he leads his brother Simon to faith. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. What's the first thing? What's the first thing that Andrew does after his experience? He finds his brother. Look at the words, he found his brother. In his excitement, he tracks him down, he finds him, he tells him, we have found the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, it's not often the case that non-Christians will walk up to you and ask, who is the Christ? (laughs) Right? Like Jesus, he came from heaven, he sought us out to save us. We too are to go out to the highways and by as we find people in love and we tell them what we have found. We have found the Messiah. Andrew came and he saw, he couldn't keep it to himself. He tells Peter, we found him. He's here. The one scripture has spoken about, he's here. The one we've prayed for, he's here. The one our hearts have longed for, he's here. And you won't get this. He's inviting us to follow him. Peter's gonna struggle with this for a while. You'll see in Luke chapter five when Jesus is calling, calling him, Peter is saying, get away from me. I'm a sinful man, you are the Lord. Andrew's telling him we found him and he's inviting people like us to follow him. He is the Messiah. Now the Messiah probably means less to us, no doubt, than it would to them. What, it, what is Messiah? John tells us it's translated the Christ. It means the anointed one. Now this, this is the title of the person that they're waiting for who would come. He would be the king and the savior of Israel. He is the anointed one. You can kind of trace, you can trace this out throughout the Bible. We see this, first it's applied to the priests of Israel, especially the high priests. We see this in Exodus chapter 29. Next in Israel's history, the anointing of God with oil, it's applied to the kings of Israel. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 10 as Saul is anointed king. We even see it sometimes in prophets like Elisha. He was anointed in 1 Kings chapter 19. When someone was anointed with oil, it was showing Israel that they were set apart as holy 
by the Spirit of God, most often with the Spirit of God. They're set apart for his service. The Messiah is the fulfillment of Israel's prophets, priests, and kings. He is the spirit indwelt son of God who is and brings the kingdom. So when Andrew tells them the Messiah is here, it is loaded. Peter especially would have heard the royal overtones. Our king has come. So Andrew receives, rejoices, he shares, and then look at what he does next. Verse 42, he brought Simon to Jesus. He doesn't send Simon to Jesus. He brought Simon to Jesus. He told him and he showed him. The Messiah is here. Let me show you. I'll go with you. Let me walk with you on your journey to meet the Christ. We see here two different types of evangelism, and they're both necessary. One is, we might say, the pulpit preaching of John. He's preaching the gospel to different people as they come in and out, and then we see what is maybe a more relational type preaching. What Andrew has received, he takes, and he wants to give it to his brother. In his love, in his joy, he wants to share it with Simon. I found the Messiah, and I'm going to take it, take you to him. I think if we all were to reflect on our testimonies, we would see that coming to faith is a process. No doubt conversion, it happens in a moment. God gives us the gift of new life, we're regenerated, we turn from our sins, we trust in Christ. And yet again, if you were to look back over your own life, you would see that it was a process of people sharing the gospel with you, of them trying to take you to Jesus. Coming to faith is most often a process. We can take our non-Christian friends and family to Jesus. We can walk with them to where he is most clearly seen, in the word and in the church. Again, don't just encourage them to read the Bible. Read the Bible with them. Like, let me take you to him. I promise you he will not disappoint. Let me show you where he dwells in the midst of his people. Don't just send them, go with them. Invite them to read the Bible with you, to pray with you, to sing hymns in your home with you. Invite them to church with you. Again, what we're doing here is not trying to make them think that they're Christians when they're not. That's deceptive and it's destructive, it's dangerous. The point is to have them come and see the Jesus whom we have seen, whom we believe, who has changed us. Jesus is inviting the world to know him, to experience him, and he does so through the evangelism of others. Andrew says, we've found the Messiah, he's here, let me take you to him. Verse 42, when Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. All right, typically, you meet someone and you call them by a different name, it's because you got it wrong. (laughs) Jess, my wife, Jessica, she often gets Jennifer. That's like her wrong name, Jennifer. I probably get Josh. I bet Josh gets John. Jessica gets Jennifer all the time. But Jesus, again, he sees him. John is presenting something that mundane, but it's meaningful. He doesn't just see Peter. He sees into him, or into Simon, rather, and then he renames him, or at minimum, gives him a nickname that's going to stick, Peter. 
Cephas in Aramaic, translated as Petrus in Greek, English Peter, it means rock. Jesus is renaming him as the rock. Now, I think it has to be purposeful and meaningful, transformational. Jesus doesn't make lateral moves, okay? He makes things better. We'll see this next week as Jesus turns water into wine. If that offends you, it is an upgrade. Now, why does Jesus call him Peter? We don't see this in the Gospel of John, but in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you, first, who do other people say I am? Then he wants to know, who do you say that I am? Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, you know, Simon, son of Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And also I say that you are Peter, that is, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Protestants, I think, often fearing the papacy, are disinclined to read Matthew chapter 16 as though Jesus is calling Peter um, the rock of the church. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone, but they're the foundation. I think Jesus is saying Peter is the rock because he's going to build his church on him, on the foundation of the apostles and on their uh, gospel message. Okay? So Jesus sees Simon, which is more than mundane. He looks into him, and by looking at him, he understands him. And I promise you what he saw was anything but a rock. Yes, he will sink into the Sea of Galilee, that's because his faith is weak. He'll deny Christ to his servant girl because he's afraid. And yet Jesus calls him rock. Not because of who he is, but because of who Jesus will make him. He would be the leader of the apostles. In Acts chapter two, the spirit will fall. Peter will preach to thousands, calling them to repentance for killing God's Messiah. In Acts chapter 5, the Sanhedrin tells Peter and the apostles to stop preaching. Peter says, we must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. They flog Peter and the apostles. They leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy, that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Peter would be crucified like Jesus, He considered himself unworthy to die like Christ, so he asked to be crucified upside down. Simon is anything but a rock when Jesus meets him in John chapter one. But Jesus does something. He doesn't just call us, he makes us into what he calls us. Right, when we come face to face with Jesus, when we believe upon him, he changes us. He makes the cowards courageous, the foolish wise. He makes the weak strong. He turns idolaters into worshipers, adulterers into lovers, thieves into givers. Importantly for us, he makes the unholy holy, the spotted spotless, the impure pure, the unrighteous righteous. Jesus invites us to come and see him. And in doing so, he changes us. He makes us into what we were made to be all along. You see, the invitation to come and see is oddly the invitation to come and to be, to become. 
what we were meant to be all along in Christ. With a look and a word, Jesus says, you're Peter. Not yet, but you will be. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus tells Peter that at the end of his life, he's going to be strapped and carried where he doesn't want to go. He's alluding to the fact that he will be crucified. If Peter had heard that in John 1, he would be gone. He'd be rowing across the Sea of Galilee as quickly as he could. By John chapter 21, the only thing Peter wants is to show Jesus that he loves him. The one that he saw bleed and die for him to forgive him. His God, his king, his friend. He has had an encounter, an experience. He is changed. He has seen the Christ. Again, how does Simon get there? His brother takes him. His brother, with whom no doubt he has history. They've fought together. They've laughed together. They've cried together. His younger, smelly brother takes him in his faith and his joy to meet Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, is there a family member whom you need to be taking to Jesus? Showing them what it is that you have seen. We see the evangelism of a preacher. It leads to the evangelism of a sibling. And then I think it leads to our last scene, the evangelism of a friend. Verse 43. The evangelism of a friend. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Okay, so after spending this day with Andrew and Peter, Jesus decides to go to Galilee. Why? We don't know, but John is showing us that Jesus found Philip, who's from Andrew and Peter's hometown. I think Peter, or John, perhaps wants us to think that when Andrew and Simon Peter are with Jesus or telling him, we have a childhood friend we want you to meet. His name is Philip. Jesus then goes to Galilee. He finds Philip. He tells him, follow me. Philip receives Christ and he does a natural thing. He looks to share him. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and so did the prophets. Like, John with his disciples, like Andrew with Peter, like I think Peter and Andrew with Philip, Philip now does with Nathaniel. We found him. He finds Nathaniel and tells him, we found the one that Moses wrote about. The one he wrote about in Deuteronomy 18, 15, when he said, the Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. We found the one that the prophets wrote about. Daniel 7's Son of man, Isaiah 53's suffering servant, Zechariah 9's king, he's here. And his name is Jesus, son of Joseph. He's from Nazareth. Now, verse 46, Nathaniel gives all-time snarky response in the Bible. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I appreciate his candor. He's like, Philip, you're my boy. I love you. I'm going to be real with you. Ain't no Messiah coming out of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because nothing has so far. This tells us, I think, more about Jesus than it does about Nathaniel. Have you ever considered that Jesus identifies himself with Nazareth, where he grew up, and not Bethlehem, where he was born? 
Bethlehem is it's prestigious. It's the royal city of David. Nazareth is nothing. By the world's standards, it is nowhere filled with nobodies. It is podunk. It's not Jerusalem. It's not Bethlehem. It's not New York. It's not London. It's not even Tupelo, Mississippi. You're telling me the Messiah is coming from Nazareth? As if it's not humiliating enough for God to become a man, Jesus is born in a barn and he's raised in backwater Nazareth. Nathaniel can't believe it. He'll be shocked when he finds out that this Messiah is not a mere man, but he's God become man. He'll be shocked when he finds out not only has he come to earth, but he's come to die. Consider the humility of our God, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, verse 46, Philip answers, come and see. Notice, Philip isn't put off by Nathaniel's immediate rejection. He doesn't take it personally. Like a good evangelist and a friend, he's persistent. He says, come and see. He knows what he's found. He doesn't even feel the need to answer his objections. Like he knows the proof is in the pudding. Just come and see what I've seen. Come and see him and let him see you. This is what happens, verse 47. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, your translation might say, Here, here is a true Israelite. I think the CSP gets it right. Truly is an Israelite. Okay, Nathaniel is, if you recall, John the Baptist preaching. Israel themselves, too, they need new hearts. They need to be washed. If you recall the prologue, much of Jesus' own people, they rejected him. Some received him. They were given the right to become children of God. That hasn't happened to Nathaniel yet. Jesus is saying, truly, this is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And part of what he's doing there, I think, he's saying that Nathaniel is not duplicitous. He's not a hypocrite. Like, he doesn't think that the Messiah is from Nazareth, but he's actually curious. On the other hand, the religious leaders, they came down from Jerusalem to John. They'll do it for Jesus. They don't actually want to know if he's the Messiah. They just want to make sure he's not going to mess with their power and their status. And so I think Jesus is saying he's not duplicitous. He's coming curious. He's actually longing and looking for the Christ. Verse 48 Nathanael responds, how do you know me? Then Jesus answers, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now Jesus does what only the God man can do. Not only does he look at him and look into him, but he saw him before, he saw him earlier. Now Nathanael's mind is blown, he responds, Rabbi. Right, his tune changes from, from someone from nowhere to rabbi, to teacher, to master. He goes on, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He is calling Jesus the Messiah. Both of these terms, son of God and king of Israel, and the way that Nathaniel is using them, is using them, they are messianic terms. Son of God, initially, he's not speaking about his divinity. We would say that Nathan is speaking better than he knows. David's kings were called the sons of God. We see this in Psalm Chapter 2, we see this especially in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes a covenant with David. He says that he's going to raise up a descendant from David. Um, 
that God is going to build his name or his um, kind of kingdom, and then he in turn is gonna build a temple for God. And then verse 14, importantly, God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. So when Nathan is saying that he's the son of God, he means that he's David's son, God's king. He doesn't yet realize that this is God the son incarnate, the word of God, the one and only son eternally begotten of the father. He's speaking better than he knows. He is first off the son of God and then the king of Israel. Jesus responds to him, verse 50, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. This is what Philip invited him to come and see. You will see greater things than this. Like that was a parlor trick compared to what you will see. Jesus goes on, verse 51, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus now adds another title to himself, the Son of Man. This is his favorite self-identification, the only one he uses in all four Gospels. It comes from Psalm 8, so it's uh, kingly, it's royal, but especially from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision, he sees the Ancient of Days, and then he sees one like a Son of Man, something like a God-man, coming from the Ancient of Days. He's given dominion, this kingdom, this rule that is without end. So Jesus is saying, he... I am the son of man. You are gonna see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on me. This is much better than me seeing you under the fig tree. What Jesus is doing here is he's drawing off of a well-known text from Genesis 28. An Israelite would have known it. I would encourage you even to turn there in your Bibles. I'm gonna read it, Genesis 28. Genesis 28, this is about Jacob, so Abraham is his grandfather, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place and put, his, and put it there at his head and laid down in that place. And he dreamed a stairway was, on, was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you were lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch you, watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised for you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob has this dream where he sees a stairway. Maybe you've heard it called a ladder before. Stairway's better. It's like if you were envisioning a stairway up to a throne room. Only Jacob is seeing this stairway go all the way to the throne room of heaven. He sees his angels ascending and descending on it and he realizes that the Lord is next to him. So what Jacob has discovered, he's come to a place where heaven and earth are overlapping. 
He says, this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of the Lord. And God himself is there speaking to him. Now keep this in mind. Jacob, several years later, he has another encounter with God. He wrestles with God. This time God changes his name, much like Jesus did with Simon. God renames him Israel. His name Jacob means deceiver. And he was a deceiver. He deceived his father to steal his brother's blessing. In a sense, he deceives or tricks his brother to get his birthright. Several years later, four chapters later, he wrestles, he struggles with God. He has this encounter with God. God changes his name from Jacob the deceiver. His mouth is full of deceit to Israel, one who wrestles with God, one who had an encounter with God. Okay, keep all that in mind and then think about our text again. Jesus comes across Nathanael, one in whom there is no deceit. He's not like Jacob. He's more like Israel, truly an Israelite. And Jesus tells him, I'm going to show you the heavens open, the angels ascending and descending on me. He's telling him, the Lord that Jacob saw that stood before him is here before you. The word has become enfleshed. Heaven and earth overlap in me. And Jesus is inviting him to come and to see. The book of John, it's set up as a series of signs. We'll see the first sign next week as Jesus turns water into wine. And what John is doing throughout the book is he's showing us the glory of Jesus. He's manifesting his glory, his eternal glory that he shared with the Father. And he was manifested on earth. This is what John tells us in the prologue, verse 14, you'll recall. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, throughout his ministry, is going to manifest his glory. It's as though Nathan and others are going to be given this glimpse of who Jesus is. The word become flesh. In John, it's especially the climax is Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Where we see his glory displayed. But the culmination is when we see the fullness of Jesus' glory at the end of time. A vision that not even Nathaniel has seen yet. John saw it in Revelation 22, the same gospel writer. Just listen to the words in the history of the church. This is called the beatific vision. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and he and they will reign forever and ever. This is what awaits all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We get in, we're invited to see him. This is what we were made for, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This invitation, this experience, this end, it is only for those who believe in Jesus. If you're visiting us this morning and you understand yourself not to be a Christian, we 
would implore you to turn from your sins this morning and to trust in Jesus Christ. To look to him, the lamb of the world, who has taken our sins that we might be forgiven and declared righteous. We would encourage you to do that today. But we'll say this, if you are not ready, you still have questions, we would be happy to walk with you, to read the Bible with you, to answer your questions the best we can, to take you to Jesus. This is why we were here. We would encourage you to talk to any one of our members after the service. Tell us where you're at and how we can help you. We want you to experience the Jesus that we have come to know and to love. The one who left heaven to save his bride. Who is Jesus? Consider the portrait that we've, got, that we've received from John just in the first chapter. He is, verse one, the eternal word of God. He is, verse two, God himself. He is, verse four, the life of men, the light of men. Verse 14, he is the word become flesh. He is the son of the father. He is full of grace and truth. He is, verse 29, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 33, he is the spirit anointed Messiah who baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit. 34, he is the son of God. 37, he is rabbi. 41, he is Messiah. 45, he is the prophet. 45, again, he was raised by Joseph and grew up in Nazareth. 49, he is the king of Israel. In verse 50, he is the son of man. He is our God, become man, become lamb. And he invites us, all of us, to behold him. To behold his majesty, his beauty, his goodness, to find ourselves fully satisfied in his supremacy. His glory is one that does not disappoint. It does not diminish. His kingdom has no blemish. It does not fade or end. And he came from heaven to find us, to invite us to follow him. And friends, he turns none away. Let's pray.